Hi everyone, welcome to the Idiots Podcast, that's infectious disease insight of two specialists. I'm Jane, that's Callum, and we're going to tell you everything you need to know about infectious disease. Soon may the editing come to discontinue the Tezo sun. One day when the CRP's done, we'll take our leave and go. Callum, how are you doing? I'm good, although I'm up in Scotland and it's wintry, so it's pretty cold up here. Is this another burr cold here, yeah? Burr cold over here, yeah? <laughs> that hey. really got me last time, but you have to do a new one. Oh. Do you know, I'm not sure I get along with these huels and all these protein shakes. They're they're not really like a full meal. They're, they seem to me to be quite mealioid. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> yeah. You can have that for free if you like much. It took me quite a long time to realise that the, the ending oid on something means like it. Yeah. Like shankroid is like a shanker. Like a shanker, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's another example. Diphtheroid. It's like diphtheria, but it's not diphtheria. So craniobacteria are often described as diphtheroid on a gram. Ah, uh, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. I love, I lo- once I learned that, I was like, oh, this makes things so much easier to remember. Well, th- this is just uh, giving everybody the idea that you didn't learn Greek at school. I did not learn Greek at school. <laughs> so what are we talking about today? I, mean, I did. We're talking about Burkholderia pseudomalii. Indeed we are. So this is the causative agent of melioid and melioidosis. was first described in 1912 by somebody called Alfred Whitmore. He was a pathologist working in Rangoon, Burma, who published a paper on a glanders-like illness. So glanders is the thing that Burkholderia malii causes. And he, you know, observed an illness that was similar to glanders, but in Southeast Asia, where Burkholderia malii wasn't considered to be traditionally found. You can find the original paper, which is an interesting read. It was published along with somebody called, I think, presumed Dr. Krishnashwami. And... Yeah, I had, a, I had a skim read through the article, and it's just always interesting reading articles from that long ago and how uh, things are described. And yeah, so the for a while, its alternative name was Whitmore's disease, also known as the Vietnam time bomb, because Vietnam vets would come back to the US and then be diagnosed with uh, melioid sometimes decades after their last known exposure to, to Burkhardera pseudomalii. So it's a really interesting disease. <coughs> And one which I've had personal experience of treating when I was working in Darwin in, in the Northern Territory. This is a real big problem, particularly in, in Indigenous Australians, as we're going to talk about shortly. But as a, a brief reminder to the Burkholderia genus, Callum, there are 79 Burkholderia species. We've talked about Burkholderia capacia complex, and that's about 20 to 22 species within that complex. Of the remainder... There are three that are kind of worthy of mention, I suppose. The Burkholderia gladioli, which is very non-pathogenic, but occasionally turns up in CF sputum. And people are not even sure if this is actually pathogenic or not, or if it can cause disease in humans, but it's sometimes observed in culture. Burkholderia malii, the thing that causes glanders. And Burkholderia pseudum, the causative agent of meliodosis and to differentiate between the two, you can use the three. You can use an oxidase test. Pseudomalia is ox positive, malii and gladioli are ox negative, and the capacia complex is, is variable depending on what species you're talking about. 
That would make a good exam question, I think, if you wanted to ask people. You get a scenario of someone that travelled or, or lived in an area endemic for these diseases, the symptoms, and as we'll come to, there, there's some overlap. So, you know, you would grow the gram-negative bacillus and there would get a deoxidase result. And I think if you knew that, then that could be a good aid. Aye, yeah. So, Calum, where do you get Burkholderia pseudomaliae? Yeah, so I guess as with all epidemiological data, we are we, there's some areas where you you have reliable data collection, and some areas where it's not possible to do that. It's usually to do with just resource, I guess. And so the areas that we know it definitely is, is Southeast Asia, and North, along with and as Australia. James mentioned, the so in the in Indonesia and Northern Australia. In the show notes, James found a good graphic which lays out like how certain we are about other places. So we're certain it's in those places. We're less certain about its presence in other tropical parts of the world. So there's pretty good evidence consensus that melioid is present in areas of Central and South America. So Mexico, you know, Brazil, Peru, Venezuela, etc. There's good evidence consensus there. And then there's there's not consensus on whether it truly is in Africa or not. I remember reading a paper a while back which was looking at soil samples and people were able to grow Burkholderia pseudomaliae, like the causative organism was found in in areas of, I think it was West Africa, that paper. Yeah. When I was doing the DTMNH. But, but is and, it causing disease in humans? Is well, yeah, exactly. Issue? And, yeah. you know, the, the access to the, you know, so the, we'll come on to the diagnostics, but the access to those tests is not universal, mm. unfortunately. So it is difficult to know. And a lot of places are using, sorry, you do syndromic treatment. So we just don't know. But I think that's a nice way of laying it out, which is how certain we are. And then I guess on the other end of the spectrum, we're, we've got good evidence that is not present in places like North America, Europe, China. Ah, well, you say that, Callum, actually, but there is an endemic spread in the southern USA. It recently been documented. There was a couple of people that had melioid. Oh, that's, not... that's a little state that's notched into the yeah. US. and they had right, not the... left the state in you know ages they'd never yeah. been to a melioid area and so they went looking around the kind of homes of these people i think they were farmers by trade that's the high risk group there and they found pseudomaliae growing in the soil so it's more widespread than we think yeah. but certainly the lion's share of melioidosis is in south is, is in the indian subcontinent southeast asia and north australia that's where almost all the cases happen are we the only host? No, there's two hosts, you and me. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, so, no, we're not... Humans aren't the only hosts for meloid, so it can also infect uh, other mammals, so pigs, cats, dogs, goat, sheep, horses, and others. <laughs> Quite a wide range. Aye, but all mammals, uh, I, guess, yeah. I guess is what we're saying. Yeah. Is that all mammals? That's all the mammals. Yeah. Uh, and incidents? Like, how of an issue is this? Yeah, so, again, as we don't have complete data, it's an estimate, but there's an estimate of 165,000 cases per year with approximately eight to 9,000 deaths, which is a very high death rate. Yeah, but, I mean, it, it's happening in places where access to healthcare is tricky. 
And the antibiotics that we use to treat this, in some places they're just not available. So I'm not surprised that there's a 50% death rate. So where would you find Pseudomallei in the environment, Cal? As James alluded to there, it grows, it's free living and grows in the soil. And it's in what people term the rhizosphere, which is basically the area around plant roots and plant life, which is where a lot of microorganisms live because of the sort of nutrients that are going on there. Around there, grasses, rice, aerial portion of grasses, and also in the feces of grazing livestock and native animals. So it's quite widespread in that environment. So you can imagine in an agricultural, agricultural society that would be a major risk. It can also be found in surface water, and sometimes in storms, it can be, end up being aerosolized. So that's another risk. You know, we'll come on to when it's most reported, but that, that would give you a hint. What are the risk factors, yeah. Jim? So the number one risk factor is diabetes because it makes the host more favourable to colonisation and subsequently infection with pseudomallei. But anything that can cause immunosuppression, with the notable exception of HIV, it's not a significant risk factor at all. Um, So that sort of implies that CD4 T cells are not the most important thing for pseudomallei host resistance. But liver disease, renal disease, alcohol excess, thalassemia, Uh, which is common in Southeast Asians, cancers, non-HIV immunosuppression, especially steroids, and cystic fibrosis, to the point where most cystic fibrosis societies will advise CF patients not to travel to melioid endemic areas uh, for risk of getting this. And if they do, they need to take measures to try and avoid contact with them. But yeah, if a CF patient gets melioid, particularly in the lung, it's big trouble. Mm. Um, In about... 16 to 36% of cases, and those numbers are from Australia and Thailand respectively, there's no risk factor. But aside from everything that we've talked about before, there are a couple of risk groups. So in Southeast Asia, it's farm workers, people that are tending the soil. And in Australia, it's the indigenous Australian population. And that's the population that I was having contact with. They were coming into the hospital with, with acute and disseminated melioidosis and that's Mm. again because of regular contact with the land particularly in kids a lot of them are wandering around barefoot and that's causing contamination or predisposing to colonization that way the way that it gets into you is you either inhale it it can go in percutaneously or you can ingest it either contaminated soil or water or stuff that has been contaminated with with those things there are actually a couple of reports of animal transmission And these are really rare, but there are case reports where there have been outbreaks in sort of zoos and farms, and that's through contact with the animals themselves Mm. or their feces, and therefore usually inhaling a high inoculum. And in fact, I've not put this down in the Prepnos Cal, but one of the the worst ways to get a really aggressive fulminant melioid pneumonia is to almost drown in Southeast Asia, and then you get like quite a high inoculum into your into your lungs god yeah nasty do you want to take through us through pathogenic or will you yeah yeah so the organism it has an intracellular life cycle and so like many organisms that that do this it allows it to evade the immune response because it's hiding within your own cells and it can replicate in both phagocytic cells so your sort of neutrophils and livings and non-phagocytic cells and then it goes between cells 
So it has a, something called an infected Sin Citya. Yeah, and I think just for curiosity, really, we can talk about the virulence factors that they've that they've got. So one of them is BIMA, Burkholderi Intracellular Motility Factor A, which promotes the host cells actin polymerization and that leads to a sort of cell to cell spread so they are changing the way that the the cells are structured they've also got some type 3 secretion systems which deliver bacterial molecules into the host cytoplasm to improve their chance of survival type 6 secretion systems i have quite forgotten what these do but apparently they help promote intracellular survival and then the other factors are things like capsular polysaccharide, LPS, flagella, the same stuff that would be considered virulence factors in other gram-negative organisms. And then there's something, lastly, called Burkholderia lethal factor 1, which sounds very cool, but I didn't look up what it did. Presumably, it kills you. <laughs> Presumably. I was just looking up no. once what Syncytia is, because I actually didn't know what that meant. Uh, oh, a, a multi, multi-nucleate cell uh, yeah. can see your respiratory syncytial virus that promotes accumulation of several cells into one massive cell and they still retain the nuclei. That's what a syncytia is. Yeah, well, that's embarrassing. All right, Cal, take us through the clinical syndromes here. So the usual incubation for, for this, so the time between being exposed and becoming ill, is is the mean, the average, is nine days and usually ranges up to 21 days. However, it is an organism that can that can actually persist for a very long time. And so there, there's reports of it coming on as quickly as two days, but there's also reports of it not becoming clinically apparent until several years later. I think this is classically described mm. in prisoners of war because they had more investigation, essentially, but prisoners of war coming back from World War II that had been stationed in Southeast Asia were kept prisoners of war. Mm. And they... And actually the longest, I think, documented episode something like 26 years or something like that in a Vietnam vet uh, as well. That, yeah. That's the other big war that happened in that area that resulted in a delayed onset of cases. Yeah, a lot yeah. of medical research gets done or has been done historically. So the latency... So I guess we don't know what the prevalence of people having latent melioid is. So if you look at antibody studies in kids the in, in Southeast Asia, so in Thai children, about 50% of them were seropositive, the ones living in rural areas. So that implies tons of latent infection. So we, we're probably, it's probably a tip of the iceberg situation. We're seeing the clinical cases, but actually there's loads of people that are infected but not getting any symptoms or just fighting off the infection and then developing antibodies. Yeah. So they think about 3% of people convert to active infection if they're latently infected. And then localised disease. So I guess we can split this up into localised melioid disease, acute melioid disease, and then disseminated infection and finally chronic infection. So if we stick with localised first. So essentially the major report, maybe Jane, you can comment on this. I don't know if you've seen it or not, but in Australian children... They can present with a skin lesion, uh, which is specific to melioid. Yeah, and I've linked to to Dermnet. It looks like gouty tophi, but on the arms and the legs. You know, it looks to me at least. But people can open that up and sort of see see examples of it. And 
you know, it's interesting, the disease kind of hits differently in Southeast Asia compared to North Australia, because in Southeast Asian kids, it's parotid lesions that they get, mumps-like lesions, whereas in, uh, in Aussie kids, it's usually skin and soft mm. tissue infections, um, which can be chronically presenting. If you're getting exposed in a different way and in different presentation? Or? Well, it can do, but they also, they talk about this. Oh, God, at this point, Callum, I should, uh, God, 20 minutes in. I'm a fool for not doing this up front. Almost all of this episode is based on an excellent nature review uh, microbiology article by titans in the field of meliodiosis research, including Susanna Dunnicky, who is local to Oxford but does lots of research in Thailand, and Bart Curry, who is an infectious disease professor and consultant in Darwin, who I had the pleasure of briefly working under uh, when I was working out there. But he's a sort of world expert on, on melioid. So is everybody that's written this article, as far as I can tell. I googled all their names and they, were all, they all seem to be very high up. And they did a Nature Review Microbiology. It came out in September, October of this year. I've included a DOI in the web link. It's got everything that you need to know about melioid, including loads of stuff that I'm not saying and that we haven't put in the prep notes because I didn't want to just replicate it fully. And then there's a little bit of information from the UK SMI. Um, really, it's a comprehensive article that tells you the absolute state of state-of-the-art on melioidosis. So if loyal listeners ever encounter a case of melioid, I would strongly encourage them to get their hands on that review article because that tells you everything you want to know. And then email some of the authors because I'm sure they'd be able to help. But yeah, so anyway, returning to the... Returning to the... Uh, we've, yes, we've got localised, so Australian children, skin lesions, Southeast Asian children, parotid lesions. Yeah. Then we move into acute melioid. The presentation show 50% of people with acute melioid are presenting with a lower respiratory tract infection. So they presumably have inhaled it in that case. And 50% of people present and are found to have a bloodstream infection. They can, Callum, present just non-specifically shocked. Yeah. And and so in that case, if they were from the right area, you would start empirical cover for uh, for melioidosis at that point. At the time, it was meropenem. It has changed now, as we'll come on to shortly. But yeah. And so, yeah, you've got this quite either respiratory or non-specific presentation, as Jamie alludes to. So a fifth of people have septic shock, whether that's on presentation or later on down the line. But that's a very high rate. Mm. I don't think many other bacterial diseases cause that rate of shock. And if you don't treat this, 90% of people die. And I think that was alluded to in the epidemiology we mentioned earlier on, where you can see that almost half the people globally that are getting this disease are not surviving it it can be complicated so you've got your acute melioid and this can then be complicated by disseminated infection and this was described in some detail in the autopsies in their initial description where they were looking at lungs and they described when they looked at the lung that there was a strange cheese-like consistency which wasn't in keeping with usual pyogenic or i guess bacterial pneumonia or tuberculosis so the organs basically can disseminate from the blood and go into several organs. So it's usually the liver or the lung or the spleen or the prostate, and it forms abscesses in those areas. And less common, location, yeah. less common locations can be bone, joints, other vis- viscera, lymph nodes, skin, or brain. 
which is interesting because most saying it's unusually lymph nodes, you're bypassing that immune defense, which kind of speaks to its intracellular nature, doesn't it? That it's things that are usually spreading in the bloodstream stream, you're going to find them in the lymph nodes first, and you're going to get a generalized mm-hmm. lymphadenopathy. Yeah. So the fact that it's not commonly there, it just speaks how good it is. And it's probably getting stuck in places like liver, lungs, lean, because there's loads of capillary beds, and that's just where a lot of your blood cells end up. Yeah, yeah. In, in particular, actually, it's a n- common known cause of genitourinary disease, so the whole urinary tract can be affected. It seems to particularly favour the prostate, and so a lot of the time, antibiotics have a bit of difficulty getting in there. I don't really know why it favours the prostate, but it certainly does, certainly in the North Australia form. Right. And yeah, and if you look at this list that we've just mentioned for disseminated infection, it's basically everywhere, right? It's oh, uncommonly yeah. everywhere, but very commonly liver, lung, spleen and prostate. Yeah. And that means that you need to get the right kind of antibiotics to treat abscesses and infections in those areas after yeah. drainage, if possible. And then your final group is the chronic cases. So that's after you've had acute and then it can it can become disseminated, but it could also become chronic. So about 10% of cases can develop chronic disease. And that is defined as if you've got symptoms lasting greater than two months. People call it like a, T, a TB-like respiratory infection, or the other option is a non-healing skin infection. So, you know, I think it's a mimic. And in places where you don't have diagnostics available, you can see how easily if you have a chronic respiratory tract infection that's making, you know, that would be a very easy to mix it up with TB if you didn't have any other way of doing it. And we also yeah. know that the diagnostics for TB that are available, like smears and stuff, are not 100% sensitive. Difficult. But the overall mortality is about 10 to 40%, and that's with treatment. So 90% untreated, but 10 to 40% with, with treatment. So it's yeah. a really severe illness. Yeah, yeah, true. Micromoding? Micromoding engaged. Okay. So culture remains the mainstay of diagnostics for familiodosis. And what can you culture? You can do blood, sputum, urine if you suspect genitourinary disease. And you can either get a skin swab if you've got something to swab, or you can get a pus sample if you've got a skin abscess. Importantly, you need to tell the lab if you're suspecting this, because at least in the UK, this is a hazard group three organism, so this needs to be taken into the CAT3 lab for processing. And what will you find once you process it? Well, it's a gram-negative bacilli, obviously. It's quite motile. It is oxidase positive, nitrate positive, and indole negative. It grows actually quite well for a Burkholderia. It will grow on standard blood or chocolate agar. Um, There are no specific commercial agars available for growing this, but there are a couple of others that you can try. And it will grow at 35 to 37, but it will take a couple of days, and it can be easily outcompeted by other bugs. So for that reason, people do try and use a selective agar. And there are a couple to mention. One is called Ashdown agar. And Ashdown agar contains gentamicin and crystal violet as selective agents. Mm. Um, and this is sort of used in an endemic areas. And there's a sort of a website that's trying to get all the meliodosis researchers together. Meliodosis called .info. And it's run by some of the Thai doctors and some of the Australians and it's a central resource and it's got a link to a YouTube video for how to prepare Ashdown agar for those interested. That's a little something for the Let's Talk Micro fanboys. 
And then the other agar you can use is BCSA, Burkle Dairy Capacious Selective Agar, because that's got crystal violet and gentamicin, as well as polymyxin B, as well as vancomycin, neither of which will affect Burkle Dairy Pseudomaliae particularly. Um, so you can try and grow it on that as well if you want a Burkle Dairy Selective Agar. And again, a couple, three or four days in, in air at 35 to 37 degrees is what's recommended. Uh, the colonies can take a couple of days to appear and initially they'll be small and creamy with a kind of a metallic sheen to them and later on they will become rough and corrugated and interestingly on ashdown media they're purple which is why the ashdown media is preferred it's easy to identify them on colonial coloring in terms of the microscopy they would appear as densely packed chains and they'll exhibit some bipolar staining as well to secure the diagnosis, you can use Molditoff, and as the databases for Moldy become more and more accurate, um, they used to be misidentified as Burkholderia thailandensis, uh, but that is becoming less and less of an issue. And of course, if you're suspecting melioid and B thailandensis turns up in your Moldy results, you will probably think this is probably still melioid. What is B thailandensis? Is that a capacious complex or just a different... No, it is a Burkholderia that we've not discussed and we're not going to. Okay, great. There is a sort of characteristic antibiotic sensitivity pattern that you can use. So for disc diffusion testing, if it was resistant to polymyxins and amyglycides but sensitive to comoxiclav, then that would be a presumptively diagnosed in endemic areas as a pseudomaliae. Um, it is not recommended to use the Vitec or the API 20E. Uh, because that will co- usually mistake Pseudomalia for Burkholderia capacia complex. Mm. Uh, and then lastly, the sort of commercial test that you might have would be antibodies. Now, this is more useful, I think, for us if we're, if you even have access to it in people that don't live in endemic areas and then they come back and they're sick and then you test them and they've got antibodies and that would be interesting. In endemic areas, lots of people will have antibodies and so that makes it much less useful as a test. In, in the UK, at least, a lot of the time these would be sent to a reference lab for confirmations. So they go down to Collendale uh, in London, and there they could use MLST, PCR, and 16S RNA as well. The treatment. It's all sorry. So, yeah. yeah, so what what can you test? So you cast... Oh, I can't believe we, we... How far are we into the episode now? Like 30 minutes or something. The And we've taken it this long to, to talk about UCAST 14. Maybe we'll have to do a separate episode that's been requested on what the changes are. <laughs> so it has, yeah. Yeah, so that means we have to do it now because anything you ask for, we have to do. That's how this works. And you, you, but you know, how interesting is it that, that we've got UCAST breakpoints for Pseudomaliae? And that was because of a Herculean effort from the Meliodosis.info researchers uh, presenting data on what works yeah. in data for what, Callum? Well, the things that you can test are you can test against comoxiclav, keftazidine, imipenem and meropenem, doxycycline, chloramphenicol, and cotrimoxazole. And all of these have, apart from the carbapenems, but all of the ones apart from imipenem and meropenem, they have the, the UCAS, the way that they do it now, where they want you to use the increased dosing. 
So they put the susceptible breakpoint as less than 0.001, which is not a not an achievable target. And so you'll never get a sensitive to Cormoxiclav for Pseudomalia. You will only ever get a I for increased expo- increased exposure, sensitive susceptible at increased exposure, or you get an R. Yeah, yeah. Which I think definitely uh, yeah, is true. Something to, to we have to communicate that clearly to your clinician if you're doing the report because people mm. say, "Oh, well, it's I to Cormoxiclav, but it's S to meropenem. Why would I not use meropenem?" Which is just not not good to put. There's work to be done on communicating that. So that's the antibiotics you have available. The other thing that was looked at was cofidrocol. So the MIC-90 was 0.125, but there was no clinical data to say if this was effective. So I guess you could consider that if you were stuck, you could maybe use that as an agent, but we just don't know if it works or not. Mm-hmm. So what do you? that's what you can test against what... Uh, what, what does that nature paper recommend that we do with the antibiotics? Well, how do we treat people? What, what did you do when you were yeah, in Australia? Well, what, what I did when, Australia, in, when I was in Australia has now changed because there was a, a paper comparing use of keftazidine to conventional therapy that found that keftazidine was better at the job. Uh, so mm. there, there's two stages to treatment. One is an induction phase and the other is the maintenance phase. The induction phase is usually for one to two weeks, although it, it can vary according to where the the bug is and, and consult that nature reviews paper for for details. But usually it's about 10 to 14 days and you will use either keftazidine or carbapenem, preferably keftazidine, and plus or minus cotrimoxazole. And you will add that in if you've got CNS, skin, bone and joint or prostate involvement because cotrimoxazole penetrates these things quite nicely and then there's a further maintenance phase of about three to six months where you just use cotrimoxazole but you use quite a high uh, dose which i'll come on to shortly if you've only got localized infection you can just use cotrimoxazole and that's particularly useful in when it's diagnosed in places far away from a hospital and the patient doesn't want to come in for two weeks of four times a day keftazidine or three times a day meropenem they'll if they say no, you can say, okay, I can just use, try at least to just use Cotrim. And then in terms of dosing regimens, the keftazidine is 50 milligrams per kilo, a maximum of 2 grams, 6 hourly. And meropenem would be 1 gram, 8 hourly, or 2 grams if it was for CNS infections. So that keftazidine dose is uh, higher then, than normally, because normally you would use up to 2 grams every 8 hours. 8 hours, yeah, you're right, it is higher. Yeah. Um, and then for cotrimoxazole, it's six milligrams per kilogram of the trimethoprim component, maximum three hundred and twenty milligrams of trimethoprim right. every twelve hours. Can I? Yeah, sidebar, it's, it's a tricky one. Why? Why do we? So we talk about antibiotics, and cotrimoxazole is a very commonly used antibiotic. And there's other antibiotics. I know it's a combination, so it's slightly different. But why do so often the dosing comes as the of trimethoprim is it because there's variability in trimethoprim to sulfamethoxazole ratios or is it always the same in which case can I mean, we just say a cotrimoxazole dose please so if there was variation between the 
the trimethoprim and the sulfamethoxal, there isn't any more. It's always in a 5 to 1 ratio. So when I say 6 milligrams per kilogram of trimethoprim, blah, 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 I could also just say 36 milligrams per kilogram of codromoxazole. Yeah, and you get exactly the same easier. dosage. It's infuriating, Callum, but every time that people are recommending a dose of Cotrim, which is more than 960 milligrams twice a day, so if they're using it for PCP or for this or that or the other, they always phrase it this way, a milligram per kilogram of the trimethoprim component. If you know the answer to and why I think we do it's that, historical. write in and tell us why. The other thing that I guess yeah, my Please do write in because I is, do not know. Is the penicillin dosing in million units. I hate that. It's outdated. It's just going to bin. I mean, that's like random. Yeah, true. I agree. I agree. Uh, if you were going to use comosoclav, I honestly, Calm, I don't really know why you would do it. And I never, I don't remember ever using this in Darwin. So when we were treating a pneumonia, in the dry season, we would use either comox or keftraxone. And in the wet season, because of the risk of melioid, we would use meropenem as our upfront oh, okay. um, pneumonia treatment. Yeah, to the point where, I remember this, the med- there were some medical students from Adelaide and they were doing their kind of final block up in Darwin. And then they went back south for their finals. And in the finals, there was a question which was like, what would you give for this person? They've got a pneumonia. And they all put meropenem. And then the uni phoned up Darwin, Royal Darwin Hospital, and was like, why why is everybody putting meropenem for treating a pneumonia? And Bart Curry had to get on the horn and say, actually, it's because that's what we use here because of the melioid risk. That happened whilst I was working there in 2012 to 2013. So yeah, the co yes, technically, what, what I've done here is the um, Keftaz, Mero and Cotrim, those doses are all from the 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 review paper and everything else here is from the UCAS higher doses. But I've never used Comox Lab this way. So you'd have to use 2.2 grams of Comox eight hourly. So that would be two grams of Amox and 0.2 of clavulanic acid, which we don't have in the UK. You would have to give 1.2 grams of Comox Clav and then a separate gram of Amoxicillin to get this dose. Whenever I prescribe the high dose oral, the 625 Comox Clav with 500 milligrams of Amoxicillin, yeah, the bo- I'll the always get a phone yeah. call from someone being like, if you've made a mistake, and they're like, no, no, this is what we want to do. Uh, just because it's no, a you made a mistake, buddy. <laughs> yeah. I, yes, uh, you might have a different formulation available in your country. Of course, yeah. And then the, there is a dose for chloramphenicol, which is two grams six hourly. And then for doxycycline, there, uh, the, the, the dosages document of, of UCAS says dosage varies by indication. And so I went to the UCAS breakpoints table and looked for pseudomalei and then looked for doxycycline. And then it says something in consult dosages a document for details. <laughs> so, so well done for that circular logic there, UCAS. So I don't know. I'm not even sure how you would use doxycycline really in this context. Luckily, Callum, resistance is not common with oh. pseudomalei. It doesn't. Oh my God. It, it is usually mentor, sensitive to all the first line resistance. things. Yeah, I know. So it is usually sensitive to all the first, the frontline things, and thank God it is. The there are some risk factors for resistance, and that would be a high bacterial burden, an abscess that you haven't drained, osteomyelitis, obviously, and if you've got it in a bronchiectatic patient, 
So the, the resistance mechanisms are here in a, in a graphic which I have I've pinched unceremoniously from the Nature Reviews article because I just thought it said absolutely everything that needed to be said. And it's the resistance mechanisms that you can get. So there are some beta-lactamases that will confer resistance to colmoxiclav, keftazidim, and if, and if produced in high enough values, imipenem. Keftazidim obviously is an anti-pseudomonal drug, and so it, it, it does that by working on PBP3, which is Pseudomonas's favourite PBP. You can, Pseudomonas can then lose that to confer resistance. Um, there are methyl transferases which can confer resistance to doxycycline if you end up using that. And then lastly, there's our favourite resistance mechanism, Callum, confusingly named efflux pumps, which will confer resistance to a variety of different uh, antibiotics. I'm not, not going to go through I, the, I names the details of, of that. You want to know that. the names of all the efflux pumps, you can go to the prep notes and look at the, the graphic. Exactly. But yes, it's... Uh, Luckily, it doesn't seem to be a significant issue with with melioid if you hit it hard enough and if you drain all abscesses. So if you uh, if you treat this with intent to kill, let's say. So when you say treat all drain all abscesses, is that if there's multiple pulmonary abscesses, you would be trying to get? I guess any time there's an abscess or pus under pressure, as ID doctors will be. Pushing for those to be drained, but I mean, Calum, it all depends on finding a radiologist or an interventionist that was going to be willing to do it for you, and yeah. that will probably be more possible in a melioid endemic area like North Australia or, or or Thailand than it will be if you get a patient that comes back here. But I think, particularly as the treatment for pseudomalaria is already so long and involves pretty dangerous drugs at pretty dangerous doses, frankly, for long periods of time, that getting as much pus out as possible is the best thing for the patient, particularly given the high mortality rate. Mm-hmm. 90% untreated, maybe a quarter untreated. So that's a lot, right? To be going with that staphoreus levels of on-treatment mortality. So it should be treated with similar seriousness. And just like that, we come to the end of the episode. That was, I think... <laughs> I think we're both sitting in shock here because that's it was a very straightforward, you know, run through it and there was no massive tangents. It's done. Yeah, well, that's good, right? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what we're waiting for. But it just feels like, and we're done. What's, what's what have we learned? Should we summarise or something? Uh, yeah, okay, fine. So, so summing up, meliodosis is a likely underdiagnosed and when it presents as a symptomatic infection quite an aggressive gram-negative illness that affects Southeast Asia and North Australia particularly but there are known outbreaks in endemic areas popping up all over the world notably in Sub-Saharan Africa, South America and Southern United States. Early diagnosis is essential but that is hampered by the reduced likelihood of recognising it outside of its endemic areas and the lack of availability of standardised culture media. When you do suspect it, expert advice is recommended and meliodosis.info would be a good place to go to to try and get that. And once you make the diagnosis, there is a standardised treatment with antibiotics, which luckily the pathogen remains susceptible to year after year to avail yourself of. Lovely summary. That's not right. A lovely summary. (laughs) 
Thanks, Jim. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Idiots Podcast, the UK's premier infectious disease podcast. We are supported by the British Infection Association, but they do not have creative control over the episode content, so please don't blame them if we get something wrong. Questions, comments, suggestions? Why don't you send them into idiotspodcasting at gmail.com? Have a five-star review in your pocket? Calm and I would love to have it. Please drop it in your podcast player of choice. We tweet at idiots underscore pod. And if you want to donate to support the show, there's a link to do so in the description. But until next time, I'm Jane. I'm Callum. See you then. Now that the episode's done, we hope you learned and had lots of fun. So go forth and treat people with some of what you now know.